0: a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview
1: hello and welcome to the ninety sixth episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose. Thank you for being here. And today we're talking to David Savage. He is the author of a book called The Decline and Rise of Democracy: A Global History from Antiquity to Today. So this is a good, interesting conversation. I really, really enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Honestly, too, because you know, democracy and stuff can be a bit of a dull topic, but this was super fascinating. Uh, just never really gave it a thought. As to where democracy came from and, and why it arose, but it seems like it's a naturally occurring thing. And uh, honestly, democracy, as you'll learn, means people having power and... You know, the democracy that we're sold on, at least here in the U.S., that it's the greatest thing ever and there's nothing better and just believe in it always, you know, it, it leaves me a little defeated or frustrated and feeling a little powerless sometimes. Like I just get to elect somebody every couple of years and I don't really I'm not really a person that has power. So that's kind of the issues and stuff that we talk about with this in this episode of, you know, where democracy came from, how it arose and, you know, what it really means and the differentiation between early democracy and and kind of modern democracy. And that modern democracy isn't really that old. It's still kind of an experiment. So it's a good conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it. Let's get to the episode. All right, we're going. How's it going, David?
0: very good how are you
1: doing good thank you for being here appreciate you taking the time to come on and and uh chat with me anytime cool well, i mean it's, glad to be here cool well good to hear it uh i mean this is uh a topic that's I don't discuss often with my friends, you know, it's not, it's not in our circles. And, but I was really curious to run across your, your book and, and kind of dig into this a little bit because it's something that like, at least being born in the U S it was just like, I, yeah, it's, it's a democracy and that's what it's been. And I never really thought about where it came from much or, or how it started or, you know, if there's anything better or where we're heading with it or, you know, any of that stuff. So I'm glad to have, to have found you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Same here. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you want to talk about first about where democracy came from and how, what we learned about democracy in the U.S. and what, what I say in the book and what the... How how we differ from the standard story, perhaps, if that sounds good to you. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, at least what what I learned in school, and probably what you and others learned in school as well, is that democracy is sort of like this unique thing that was invented at one place in one time, like maybe ancient Athens, and then it disappeared in ancient Greece after a while, and then you might learn about city republics in Italy during the Renaissance, or things like Magna Carta in England, and then eventually. Somehow democracy arose in the U.S. um, with American independence. Uh, And so you get this impression from that whole story that democracy was it's almost like a torch that was being passed uh, from one place to another uh, over time. And if the if the torch went out, uh, then, whoa that was that was that was going to be a problem. And so, you know, if if whoever is holding the torch at the time is responsible for all democracy at all places, and I, I think what, what's really interesting, if you start poking around and looking how other human societies have governed themselves, uh, there's a pretty good stance to say that, and this is what I say in the book, that democracy was actually invented by a lot of different societies in a lot of different places at a lot of different times. It's not like it was just it's, the torch theory doesn't work. Uh, it, it, it arose independently by many different people. It's such a natural thing to think of. Why shouldn't people be able to govern themselves? Uh, that it's when you think further about that, it's like, well, why couldn't people in, in, invent that independently? And, and they did. And so uh, what I think we can suggest is whether you're talking about Native American societies or pre-colonial Africa or ancient Mesopotamia, there's a lot of different societies that govern themselves democratically, democratically in ways that look very different from our democracy today. But nonetheless, I, yeah, you know, um, I think we could say it, it, it was democracy in one way, shape or fashion.
1: Okay. Well, that's, I think we should, you know, it's kind of a dumb question, I feel like for me, but it's something that I had to look up. So I feel like listeners are probably uh, curious about it too. So what, can you give like just a definition of democracy?
0: Yeah, that's a really good way to start out because for a lot of people today, if you ask them, what, what is democracy? And a lot of people say, well, it's elections, right? That's, that's, that's sort of the cornerstone of our democracy. We Sure different candidates from different parties uh, who are running for office. We obviously have a pretty huge momentous election coming up and that's what democracy is. And that democracy, if you're choosing your representatives or presidents or prime ministers by election, you're a democracy. And if you're not doing that, then, well, that's, that's, that's not a democracy. Now, if you go back to the, the funny thing is the Greeks themselves Didn't talk about elections when they defined democracy. The Greeks had this word "demokratia," which simply means that the people, the demos, had power, kratos. And so, for them, the definition of democracy was the people having power. And so, if you can think of the people having power through means that aren't elections, Mm -hmm. uh, like say that I was the ruler and you and others uh, govern jointly with me in an assembly or a council, even if you didn't elect me, uh, I might have to get your participation and your consent and your cooperation in order to rule. Then it's possible to imagine societies where everybody pitched in and everybody had their say, even if they weren't necessarily electing the person at the center. So that's sort of the difference between modern democracy, which I think is characterized by selecting people by elections and early democracy, as I call it, that often didn't involve elections but still gave the people a lot of power
1: okay yeah that 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 helps a lot so i really appreciate you kind of explaining that so it's really just the fact that um i mean broadly speaking democracy is just the people having power
0: yeah exactly i think that's that's what it comes down to
1: okay yeah well i'm glad i asked that question that that's extremely helpful um, okay. So, and then you, yeah, I mean, you kind of make the case that this, this democracy started, you know, early before we were taught, but like, why, why do you think we were taught the, the torch theory? Like you said, sort of,
0: I don't know. I, I don't know. It, 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 uh, it, maybe it comes with a little bit. So look, it, it is true. The U S uh, uh, I think was unique in having, uh, the first country to have a modern democracy based on, uh, universal suffrage at the time for free white males, of course. Um, right. uh, and that was a, that was a pretty, that was, we were first in that regard, right? So the English had their, their parliament for a long time. They had a shared form of governance between crown and parliament, but they didn't get to universal suffrage till 1918. Okay. Believe it or not. Whereas we had that much earlier. So, you know, it, it, it's certainly the case that there were a lot of exceptional, even unique things about the U S in terms of democracy, but, that's just an, an innovation of one sort of type of democracy. It's not. It's not creating the phenomenon itself. And so I think that's why uh, that's why the torch theory uh, took off, and why I believe just if people look r- around more to other societies, they sort of recognize that there's a lot more, a lot, a lot of other ways to um, to skin a cat when it comes to democracy, so to speak.
1: Sure. Okay. That's why I love this podcast and learning about all this stuff and talking to people like you is that it's. I feel like all the stuff that I was taught in grade school is just like a portion of the truth, you know, there's yeah. just so much more to dig into.
0: Yeah. And we're learning. That's the thing we're, we're learning sure. as you know, new materials become available and we start thinking about old things and new ways. That's, that's what, that's what helps get us there.
1: Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, okay. So let's, so, you know, it's kind of, we kind of need to think of it as like democracies were kind of so it wasn 't like it was one one thing that started it they were were they naturally occurring in different places it, like why were they why was why were they popping up at different societies or
0: yeah, so I think it's uh, it, it democracy was a naturally occurring thing in human societies, but it wasn't inevitable because there's been a lot of democracies over time, but there's also been a lot of autocracies and so democracy was more likely to happen when Those who, who, you know, a central ruler didn't have something like a bureaucracy and military composed of subordinates that would allow them to just do things on their own, uh, to rule on their own. Uh, It happened, if you think of uh, a society like the Huron and the Iroquois in in, uh, eastern North America, uh, these were societies where they had chiefs, but chiefs had no real power because they had no independent resources. They didn't have subordinates that they could sort of order around and say, go do this, go do that. Uh, they didn't have a military. They relied on the people, on members of society to 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 do anything, basically. Yeah. And so it's in those environments, I think, that democracy was much more likely to emerge. And it was less likely to emerge in environments where somehow rulers got ahead um and we able to construct a, a bureaucratic state uh, that they used to rule not literally on their own but on their own via subordinates as a as opposed to ruling through the people
1: okay i see so is that was like broadly speaking is that kind of the two things that we've seen that govern people is is democracy and autocracy
0: that's right for 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 most of human history that that i think it's useful to distinguish between those types and it's useful then to recognize some 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 differences, and that typically democracy early democracies, uh, unlike our democracy, early democracies were often quite small in mm-hmm. in terms of numbers of people or how um, or the area that they were spread out over. Uh, whereas early autocracies sometimes could cover uh, la- very large areas. If you think of ancient China or uh, some of these uh, empires that existed in uh, Mesoamerica and South America before European conquest like the Aztecs or or the Incas there was this scale phenomenon where for some reason or another democracy tended to be uh, much harder to sustain at a large scale and I think a lot of it has to do with early democracy involved a lot of face-to-face contact and discussion.
1: Oh I see okay because yeah just kind of on a practical level you would need if you were a democracy back then without kind of technology or something you would just you everyone would kind of need to be there or or face to face like you said
0: yeah exactly just if you're thinking about prior to modern means of communication like we're using for this for this podcast then if if the people are really participating all the time then uh then 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 it's 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 much easier if you're talking about a town or a village or a small community or maybe a a society that's made up of a small few small communities that that get together from time to time and and for one reason or another and I don't think we actually know the answer to this autocracy was able to extend over much larger distances than than democracy was
1: right okay so what are the i mean do you have any specific examples of of early democracies that you know that you want to share that you like or anything and and also what's like what is the the year or the time frame of those that we're th- discovering?
0: Well, the time frame ranges a lot because uh, I've already mentioned the example of the the Huron people uh, who were in present day Ontario and the uh, the Iroquois uh, in, in in New York State. And so those would have been societies that were uh, existing up until uh, conquest by by Europeans and were early democracies quite late in the day but then there are also examples that are very very old so in ancient mesopotamia it's fascinating that there was a sort of alternation between uh individual cities ruling themselves or some periods as early democracies Mm -hmm. and uh and then at other periods someone someone would manage to get a leg up and sort of conquer all the cities and rule on his own together with a, a military with a uh, and a bureaucracy, and so there's this one um, great example <clears throat> called the Kingdom of Mari, where, and this is all based on what people have done, looking at old sort of cuneiform writings and trying to infer what the what what happened at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were clearly council schools and assemblies and some sort of popular participation in in governance. And we're talking about. Um, you know, the second millennium BC here. So that's, 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 wow. that's, a, that's a long time ago. And, and then what happened is they ruled independently for a while and then they got conquered by Hammurabi, who had the famous uh, Hammurabi's uh, law code that we sometimes learned about in school. So, so those are just two examples that could, it could go on. There's others in Africa or elsewhere that, that, that really suggest that this, this phenomenon was pretty widespread.
1: Wow. Okay. Man, that's so cool. I, I, like, yeah, that's just such a mind blowing idea. So I'm I'm glad we're, we're learning about this and you're sharing. it. Yeah.
0: That, that, I mean, it's really the way I felt um, when I, when I started to write this book, I was trying to explain why, well, I was thinking about just Europe, China, and the Middle East. And I was saying why democracy emerged in Europe and not the other two places, which is true. But then as I started to dig deeper, I said, Hey, wait a minute. There are a lot of other societies that weren't Middle East, China, or Europe that nonetheless had some of these these democratic features. And so I, I shifted from thinking, wow, Europe was unique and exceptional to say Europeans were, were basically lucky. A lot of people started off with early democracies, but Europeans managed to to keep it that way.
1: Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So what, so what happened in, in China? Why did, why did democracy decline there?
0: Well, China from, from a really, really early date, uh, you know, 2000 years B.C. or, or thereabouts, uh, we have a phenomenon where, from what we know, the, you get a, a form of rule based upon kings. They weren't yet calling themselves emperors, but kings from a, a, a very early, very early date in the Shang dynasty. And you have examples of a very hierarchical society spread out over a large territory. Uh, and rulers ruling through subordinates of a sort. And one of the things that, that helped them sustain that, I think, is there was a sort of a form of agriculture they had, a form of high-yield, very intensive agriculture that sort of made things very regular and observable for rulers so that they could extract things from society in terms of food and taxes um, without having to sort of rely on the cooperation of the people that much. And so for for all those reasons, I think... They got going on this autocratic trajectory um, <clears throat> from a very early ba- a very early date. So it's it's not like the Mesopotamian example where oh they alternated back between periods of empire and then periods of of council or assembly governance. Um, those examples in Chinese history of council or assembly government are are almost absent.
1: Okay, I see. And so, I mean, just to dive deeper, help me understand a little bit more. Like the reason was just because. The reason that it stayed, you know, sort of autocratic was that it, they just had predictable resources that, you know, the ruler could go take, essentially.
0: Yeah, I think that helped that 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 helped. And that if things were more predictable, if the ruler knew, you know, if you were ruling and I was producing uh, and you knew basically how much I could you know how much of my crop i could produce each year and therefore how much of my crop you could take oh. uh, it, it made your problem of extracting resources easier whereas say that you were uh, ruling over a community where you didn't really know what what they could produce you might want to invite them along uh, to say like, okay, what what, what do you think uh, is possible? What's going to be production? What's the appropriate tax rate? Um, and of course, that only works if uh, the ruler and people then uh, are, are, if there's some commonality of objective for what the money is getting spent on, like say external defense or something like that. Because if the rule is just purely extracting, then of course- <laughs> uh, I'm not going to tell you what 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 I can produce under any circumstances, but as long as there's a little bit of overlap, commonality of interest, then, yeah, you do get this very, very interesting phenomenon where it could be uh, uh, good for a ruler and and, uh, and citizen to form an assembly or a, or a council.
1: OK, that makes sense. That's yeah, that's interesting because that, it's such a uh, like a practical thing almost where like, you know, today I just. The government can see all the money that comes in through my bank account. They have exactly, you know, precisely. Yeah. They know, but yeah, yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know back then exactly.
0: No, exactly. So that's someone. Someone commented on the book, and they said, "Well, what you show there's the democracy. If you want to understand the rise of uh, the early, the rise of early democracy, then follow the money, basically, right. or follow, yeah, yeah."
1: Okay, man, that's interesting. I, I love learning about that. Um, and then, so what's the story with the with the Middle East?
0: Well, the Middle East is fascinating because if you think about China really starts off autocratic from the get go and stays that way. And uh, Europe starts off with this more participatory form of governance. Obviously, during the Middle Ages, if it's a king and a few nobles and a council, we're not going to say that's uh, that's truly democratic, but it's a lot different than what you found in China. So there's this commonality of of uh, collective rule in Europe uh, throughout uh, but the Middle East kind of shifts, and it, it's really fascinating because if you look at, um, say, uh, tribes in, in what we know of, of uh, pre Islamic Arabia, uh, there were groups that followed very clearly an early democratic pattern where there were leaders uh, who didn't have much independent uh, authority. They had no bureaucracy, they had no state. Uh, these are cases where uh, often um, groups where people would be very mobile. Uh, And they could exit. If you were unhappy with me as a ruler, you could just take off and go elsewhere and find someone else. Wow. And so the exit imperative led to a more horizontal collective form of governance. Uh, and so, and this persisted even, you know, after the initial Islamic conquest for some de- for for some time. There's this principle called shura in the in the Quran, which means uh, government, which basically means the need for consultation in in rule. So, so it's nothing to do with Islam itself that uh, that led to the shift towards a more autocratic form of rule. What happened is with the Islamic conquest, they got so big so quickly that they ran up against that barrier I mentioned before that. Autocracies in the early, you know, in early times could function at scale, whereas democracies, no one had yet figured out a way for democracies to function at scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing that happened in the Middle East is with the Islamic conquest. As soon as the uh, the Arab armies invaded Iraq, they sort of inherited it, someone else's state, because there was this empire called the Sasanian Empire that had the whole bureaucracy, military uh, high-yield agriculture, um, agriculture where you could easily monitor and see what people were making, uh, and therefore a very autocratic form of rule that went all hand in hand with that. And so when the Arab armies conquered this part of uh, Iraq um, in which uh, the, the Sassanian Empire was located, they just sort of got rid of the leaders, took over the bureaucracy, and then reverted to becoming autocrats themselves so it's a dramatic shift from early democracy towards uh towards autocracy yeah
1: wow that's good (laughs) that's a
0: crazy story yeah 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 no exactly
1: man okay um so what do you should we jump ahead to kind of what america does now do you think is that a good way to go
0: yep absolutely
1: okay so yeah how what's the deal there how does that kind of form
0: Okay, as in how democracy forms in America?
1: Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, whatever you think that would be the best way to take us, but yeah, because the the U.S. is different, like you mentioned, right?
0: Yeah, the U.S. is different, and I think the so let me let me let me start off with England, um, mm-hmm. and because England is important as a precedent, but then the U.S. gets to uh, England is it starts off in getting towards a new type of democracy, uh, but America is the first to to, to get all the way there. Okay. um and so in 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 again for all the way there for free white men, not for a lot of other categories of people, right. so you yeah, know, in, know in some sense, you couldn't say that America wasn't a democracy until nineteen sixty five right so
1: yeah true
0: uh so in england the the England there's a lot of Parliaments and assemblies throughout Western Europe in the medieval era uh, in England it starts off not looking terribly unique in that in that regard but this this funny thing happens uh, very early on in England so in most of these Western European countries where kings brought together assemblies and parliaments, the towns and communities that would send deputies or representatives or delegates to these assemblies. Bound them with mandates, and it would sort of be like if you were sending me as 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 your your delegate or whatever you wanted to call me. If uh, and you would say, David, yeah, you can agree to X, Y, and Z, but you can't agree to A, B, and C. Or this is the max we're willing to do, and that's it. And mm-hmm. that every every um, any deviation from that, you'd have to come back. I'd have to go back to see you again, and you'd have to agree to a deviation, right? And so this made for an incredibly cumbersome style of decision-making, and there wasn't even a principle of majority rule. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in England, from the 14th century, the system of mandates, as it was called, uh, goes out the window. Uh, Mandates disappear, and very early on, we have a phenomenon where the individual representatives to Parliament come with full powers, uh, and that means that they're able to decide and negotiate and decide on things um, uh, as they see fit um they'll need to go back to their constituencies eventually but they don't have a strict written mandate that binds what they what they can do uh and there's also a principle of majority rule that emerges and saying that previously sometimes a community might say well we don't like this decision we're just going to opt out um that was no longer possible and so right there you get a principle of uh of um of uh modern governance that's how our congress works today right of course is that mm-hmm. you know individual states sometimes would like to opt out of decisions but they don't they don't get to it's majority and we don't have uh we don't have mandates anymore um we sometimes have uh the you know like the republican contract with america in 1994 where they tried to say okay we're going to do this this and this but uh, the only way in which we can display that we're unhappy with our representatives is just not to reelect them. So that's that's a key feature of modern democracy. And then the, the the thing is, what happens with England, though, is that they didn't get all the way to universal suffrage. There were people in England in the 17th century who were talking about universal suffrage. And sorry if I'm going on too long, but it's a long story. No, this is great. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, and. And there's it's a group called the Levelers. Uh, who had been part of the uh, the English civil in the English Civil War, and they said, "Well, let's have uh, let's have universal suffrage." Well, that didn't go down too well, sure. uh, even among the people who had overthrown um, the king at the time. And so, oh. there's something something different about America that led to this principle of a broad suffrage. Uh, and I think what happened in the early colonies, if you look at it, that initially a lot of the people who established the colonies wanted to rule them in a top down fashion. Mm-hmm uh but what then happened uh was that they needed people uh and the people who arrived there there was a lot of land if the people didn't like what you told them you they could just take off and so you get this exchange of voting in assemblies in order to attract people and sort of keep them on side
1: right uh, okay
0: and this this happens in in the case of the virginia company it's cr- it's quite explicit they say oh you should have an assembly you should be able to vote blah a lot of law in order to keep people on side and so uh, it 's the natural environment of land abundance and labor scarcity and the fact that people could just move elsewhere that leads to this tradition of uh very broad um suffrage for for free white uh males in a lot of the colonies uh way 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 before seventeen seventy six
1: right okay yeah, yeah. that's i w- I just did um because it 's the four hundredth anniversary of the the mayflower now. So, um, I was just talking to somebody about the Mayflower compact and that's like, I guess some people consider that like an early, like the basis for what became, uh, the U S
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that's, there's two interpretations of the Mayflower and there are similar moments in, in other Massachusetts is a great example of, uh, early voting in the towns of Massachusetts. Uh, it happens in Virginia too, in Maryland and elsewhere, uh there, there are two different ways to read the mayflower compact one is that it's part of the torch theory right that you know the people showed up and they had the torch with them yep. and the other is just to say that this was the mayflower compact happened because anyone who would have wanted to rule in a top-down fashion just didn't have the
1: ability to do that right yeah i mean that, that makes total sense when you put it that way yeah um okay and so that's eventually what led to you know the the U.S. Constitution and 1776 and all that that we learned?
0: Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, the the the, the, the flip side to all that, of course, the tragic side is that lab- needing labor uh, also means that you get a lot of Africans who come over who are, who are brought over who are enslaved. Sure. Uh, so that's the 1619 element. Um, and it's responding to the same problem, labor scarcity. Uh, and the difference is, is that uh, Africans who are brought over as slaves they don't have very good exit options. They wouldn't have initially spoken the language. They wouldn't, they, you know, they wouldn't have the same ability to just sort of blend off uh, as um, British settlers would have done. So you get a, you know, the opposite outcome for that. So it's really these underlying conditions of land abundance and labor, labor scarcity lead to slavery for some and, and freedom for others.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah, yeah, when you think about it, it's like yeah, there's the the democracies coming in and all that stuff. But for a lot of people, they didn't get that.
0: No, exactly. And I think that, you know, the 1619 Project for the New York Times is really good at emphasizing that and saying, like, look, there's, there's and I, yeah, I just think that there are two sides to the same coin driven by these same underlying conditions. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. No, that's good to know. Um, so, oh, you're, you're, um, so the last chapter of your book is called The Ongoing Democratic Experiment, correct? Correct. So why, why is it, why say experiment? Why use that term?
0: Well, I think experiment because uh, we tend to think, well, the U.S. has been around for so long. Uh, we've been at it for about as long as the Athenians were at it in terms of a like, successful democracy. And so uh, if you think that early democracy was around for several thousands of years, um, then our own country, uh, which was in arguably the first modern democracy, uh, if you think about however many, however many uh, years we've been around now, 240-something, um, that's pretty, still pretty recent. Uh, and so I think it's an experiment, and I think it's, uh, it, it's all the, it seems all the more like an experiment because the last decade or so, I don't know, last decade, last 15 years, you choose, choose your date, um, has reminded us that um, uh, there are a lot of reasons to think that, you know, our democracy is not inevitably going to survive, and there's points of fragility there. Right. Uh, and so we need to think about that, and we need to when we need to think about that, we need to use the long history of democracy to to look at it
1: yeah no that's that's a good point to to kind of get your mind thinking about that again, especially with the timelines of how long we've been a- around because yeah, you know being born in the u s and taught in grade schools, it's like yeah this is this is the best thing that's out there, we've got the best, and it's gonna last forever
0: yeah, and I think that's uh one thing that got swept under the rug, uh, what we were taught in school, you're taught in school, you say, well, the, maybe you heard about, like, direct democracy in Athens, where it was just people went themselves, and then you learned that representative democracy happened, and therefore representative could, democracy could happen over a much larger territory. Uh, right. True. Uh, but we still have a problem of scale. The U.S. is a very big country with uh, people of very, very different tastes and preferences and desires and um, you know, spread geographically large in number. And maybe we need to remember that it's it's we still have a problem of scale. It's an issue make, make, making things work and making people uh, uh, avoiding a problem where people just distrust uh, the government in Washington.
1: Mm hmm. So, I mean, in your in doing all this research and everything, do you have any uh, ideas or insights of of things we may want uh, to, to tweak in our current system or change?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we need to realize is that in modern democracy, uh, it's great. Everybody gets to vote. Participation is very broad. Um, but for the vast majority of us, that's the only way we participate politically. Yeah. And if that's the only way you participate politically, then um, that may get to feel unsatisfying if all you can do is vote every two to four years and see whether you're happy or whether you're not happy. And so I think there have been times like in the early republic in the United States, uh, some of the leaders realized, wow, we've got to people you know, we've got to keep people connected with the government in Washington. So they did things like. Uh, one of the reasons why the, the Postal Service uh, distributed newspapers anywhere for only one penny is because this thing called the Postal Service Act of 1792 said we got to keep people informed. We got to people informed to keep them connected with the center of government. So sometimes keeping people connected with government um, depended on maybe the government itself making investments to, to see that that happens. And I think we might want to go back to that 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 precedent and and see what could be done along those lines
1: okay go back to the precedent of just just trying to inform people
0: yeah deeper. trying to inform people keep them connected yeah exactly
1: okay i mean are we to the cuz now it feels like we there's i almost give up on stuff cuz there's just too much information for me to to get to
0: yeah, exactly. That's the problem today. It's not, if you think of like someone in like 1783 uh, in a farm, I don't know, in Pennsylvania or something like that, uh, that was either no information or they got a newspaper. Yeah. Um, whereas today we could drown in information and information and disinformation. So it's no longer an issue of, uh, do you have the information? I think it's also a question of what the quality of the information is Yeah, and yeah. how much you trust that information uh and one of the things that's unfortunate we've seen a lot of uh disappearance of a lot of local news outlets um Mm -hmm. it's happening in the u.s it's also happening in other countries like the uk where just the nationalization of news and so uh, people are actually all the surveys show that people are much less trusting of national media than they are of local media Mm. which is interesting um people are also more trusting even today of local and state governments than they are of national governments which again comes back to this question of, uh, you know, maybe that's showing us again that democracy is easier to maintain at a smaller scale than a larger scale.
1: Yeah, right. Man, this is so interesting. I I, I like kind of uh, thinking about this and, and diving into it with you. Um, so yeah, I mean, so a main the main thing about your book and what you're trying to hope to do is, is kind of just, you know, bust some myths about democracy and, and, and stuff like that. Is there anything that we maybe didn't cover or miss that you want to get to?
0: No, I think that's that. You, you hit the, the the main point uh, perfectly, and that if we want to understand where we are today, we need to go back to the deep history of democracy and sort of rethink things. And if we rethink things, that will help us to better understand our where we are and what we need to do.
1: Right. Okay. Very cool. Is there any? Um, yeah. So it's it just is. To me, it's it's fascinating to think about what could be done or what could be changed. Are there any? Um, you know, other. Other states besides the U.S. that you see doing things that are maybe in the correct direction or different? Well, direction?
0: I think there's other societies like uh, if you go to Germany or Denmark, people are still much more trusting of government. Those are much mm-hmm. more um, cohesive. Uh, and, I, you know, I wonder whether um, some of the the. the there are different ways of participating politically in a lot of the, the protests we've seen recently. I mean, the, the George Floyd protests were remarkable for how many different communities protested
1: mm-hmm. and that's
0: a form of political action. So I, I wonder if that's not something that people need to think about, as, not violent protest, of course, but right. uh, peaceful, peaceful protest uh, as a way of expressing your views. And and again, getting that to that back to that idea that you're actually participating politically somehow and you don't just have to wait. Every four years, and you know, cast your ballot, and then, then see how how that all adds up. Yeah, um, because if it's just that, it, yeah, I don't know, people. I mean, it comes it comes back to the, the Greek definition: if the people have power, then it's a democracy, right? Well, if the people have sort of ceded power by, we all just say, I distrust the government in Washington, I don't care, or whatever. Then that's not a very stable foundation for a for a democracy.
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point about the, you know, because I, personally, I feel, you know, just kind of, uh, um, you know, frustrated and, and like, I just don't have much, much influence on this kind of stuff. So I don't spend a lot of time, you know, focusing on things that are outside of my control. But it's like you said, it's because I, I don't feel like I have the power, I guess, really, I can just vote every couple years.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think we going back in time, there used to be a lot more like local clubs and things and societies and things that people would participate in. And I went that sort of a lot of that stuff's kind of withered on the vine. And a lot of it is... um, well look, one of the great things about our technological developments is like you and I can 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 link up and and do a podcast like this when this would have been unimaginable. Uh so, so that's that's a new form of discussion. But mm-hmm. it is true that there are other forms of participation that people are engaged in that um are less common today, I guess. We're kind of more more atomized.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, well, David, this is great. Let's let's mention your book uh, for folks listening. It's the, uh, the Decline and Rise of Democracy, A Global History from Antiquity to Today. Uh, anywhere specific we should send folks to grab a copy of that?
0: Right on Amazon.
1: Amazon. It's got it all. Okay. Perfect. I'll have a link for folks listening there. Um, anywhere else you want to send people or resources or anything like that?
0: Uh, my website, if you want to find out about anything I write about, uh, stasavage.com.
1: Okay, cool. Got that. We'll have a link for that in the description as well. And uh, this was great. Thank you so much, David. I, I really had fun. Thank you. And, and I appreciate this conversation.
0: Anytime. Thank you.
1: And that's it. Episode 96 is over. Pretty good, not bad, huh? It's interesting when you really start to dive in and, and look at that kind of stuff. And uh, I, like I said in the episode, I just love learning the deeper history and story of things like this and like the mayflower and the pilgrims and all that kind of stuff that you just weren't taught in grade school at least I wasn't in the US um so thank you to to david for being here and sharing that info really appreciate it thank you to you the listener for listening to this episode and even sticking around to the end just to hear me talk right now <laughs> means a lot thank you <laughs> uh you can email me, Travis, at curiosityness.com. With your tips and thoughts and feedback and ideas for new episodes, you can find me on Instagram, at Trav DeRose. I post on there once a month, maybe. So it's pretty enti- exciting. Uh, that's all we got to say. Thanks, you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is episode 96. See you in episode 97. Goodbye.